We're going to be wrapping up our little Christmas series this morning that we've been in. Uh, Mike kind of pointed to it a minute ago. In Luke's chapter uh, 1 and 2, there are three songs uh, that were composed right before and after the birth of Jesus. Each song celebrates the incarnation by emphasizing a different aspect of Messiah's work or Jesus' work. And so far we've looked at the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, uh, which emphasizes God's mercy. And then, uh, and then last Sunday we looked at the Song of Zechariah, the Benedictus, which emphasizes God's salvation. Obviously God's mercy and salvation go hand in hand. It's because of His mercy that there is salvation. And then this morning we're going to look at the third and final emphasis hymn. We're going to look at the Song of Simeon. We just read a passage that deals with that. And it's called the Nunc Dimittis. Uh, That's the Latin phrase, Nunc Dimittis. And it emphasizes a couple of different things, light to the Gentiles. But I think primarily what Simeon was trying to emphasize is the broadness of God's salvation or the scope of it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But I think before moving forward, we need to uh, get a little context, a little foundation here. In Luke chapter 2, 1 through 6, we read, uh, we read about the Roman census uh, that caused Joseph to return to his hometown of Bethlehem with his pregnant wife, Mary. And then in verses 7 through 20, we read about the birth of Jesus, you know, things like the placing of him in the manger. There wasn't enough room in the inn, so they had to stay kind of in a stable scenario. So the placing of him in the manger. And then we also read about the shepherds and the angels who came to worship and adore him. Uh, And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, we read uh, about the circumcision, Jesus' circumcision and his naming because it was a, a cultural thing and a common practice to actually name your son during that moment, eight days after he was born. And so we see the circumcision and the naming in verse 21. And then down in verses 22 through 38, we read about Jesus' dedication at the temple. Now, how many of you have heard of baby dedication? Or how many of you have actually dedicated your children to the Lord? You went through like a little ceremony thing at a church and did that? Okay, cool. I think some of you got, we've done a a couple of them, and I think even Colby led that. We're going to bring him back every time we do that because he did it so good. (laughs) Me, not too good. Uh, But it is a, it's kind of a a ritualistic ceremony thing where parents will bring a child and devote that child to the Lord. And, And it's kind of the same thing that's playing out here in the text. It's a little different and a little more complex and it's done in accordance to the law of Moses. But that's kind of what's playing out here in that, the particular text of 22 through 38. Every firstborn male was to be dedicated to God according to the law of Moses. So this is like Mosaic law. And we see that in Exodus 13. To consecrate to me all the firstborn, uh, whatever is the first... Uh, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. So what God decreed to his people, to Israel, is that the firstborn male, whether it be animal or beast, as he puts it here, or child, uh, male child, male beast, that is mine. They belong to me. They're to be set aside as holy for me. It's God's law. It's God's rule. It's what he came up with. And what we have here is exactly that taking place. Joseph and Mary had taken, uh, we'll call him baby Jesus several times today, 
Don't think of that stupid movie with Will Ferrell, uh, where he says that over and over, but just we'll be referring to Jesus as baby Jesus today, because that's the mode that he's in here. But they took baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him in accordance with that law, in accordance with that mandate. And this took place about 40 days after his birth. And it's interesting because 40 is a significant number in Scripture. There's significant numbers. But it was 40 days after when they did this. Now, the ceremony, this dedication ceremony, had a sacrificial component to it, uh, meaning that an animal needed to be sacrificed as an act of worship during this particular thing. And and this this was a Jewish thing. They were into animal sacrifice. It's part of Judaism. It's part of the law. And what the parents would be required to do is to offer up to God, as it says in the text, either two turtle doves, or if you were more on a fixed income and had less money, because turtle doves, it's not like they were, you know, $29.99 a piece. I have no idea what they cost, but they costed more than young pigeons. A young pigeon was not uh, as high-end a bird, if you will. So the parents had to offer up two turtle doves if they had the money for that, or two young pigeons if they didn't have the money for the other. And depending on their budget... During the dedication, this particular one, however, Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus were approached, like, right in the middle of this thing, like, you're up on stage doing your thing, you're dedicating your child, and then somebody kind of interrupts that whole thing and, and takes your baby, and you're like, oh, what's up? That's kind of what plays out here. It's really interesting. So right in the middle of this thing, as they're doing their deal and trying to honor God with their new son, this mysterious and rather interesting fellow named Simeon. He was an older guy. He kind of injects himself into what's playing out. That's where we'll pick it up. We're going to pick it up right there. That's where we, we pick it up. And so I think it's, it's good for us to pray uh, before we begin to look at the narrative and unfold its doctrinal truths. Father, um, just thank you for Christmas and thank you for these people that have come. We appreciate uh, you leading them down here. And we, we don't believe, Lord, that uh, anyone here is by chance, that anyone is truly here just because they were invited. But we believe that you have led us here to this moment. And not just to check out someone's church or to hang out with someone we care about and love, but you might have a divine purpose for some of us here today. Maybe to call some of us out of darkness and into your wonderful, marvelous light, into salvation. Lord, we pray that you would unpack that for us and show us that and reveal that to us today. And for those of us who are in the light, for those of us who are saved, we thank you so much for Jesus and for his work, his finished work. And we pray that you would sanctify us today. And what that means is that you would just grow us and mature us a little bit more in the Lord. Make us just a little bit more like Jesus. What a splendid, what a wonderful day to do that on, the day that we commemorate the birth of our Savior. Make us just a little bit more like him chip away a little bit of the flesh and a little bit of the past and a little bit of the garbage and just sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Christ that we might glorify and honor you in all that we do. Uh, We pray for uh, focus this morning and we submit ourselves to you and yield to you as our teacher, as our rabbi, as our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick it up at verse 25. Are you there? Luke 2, verse 25, we're just going to kind of walk through uh, this passage. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, 
Have you ever met anyone named Simeon? You have? I never have. I've never met anyone. I'm just wondering. I don't even know why I'm interrupting myself to make this point. But uh, I've just never met anyone named Simeon. I never have. And I, I think I need to. It might help. Um, so there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. It's an interesting name. And this man was, look at these details, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit, and this is key, the Holy Spirit was upon him. So the first thing that we notice is that verse 25, it basically tells us five things about Simeon. And I I love Luke's account of the gospel because he's a historian and he includes all sorts of cool details. I mean, don't even think for a moment that these descriptive things about Simeon were put in there just for the heck of it. They're there for a purpose. Luke wants us to know who this guy was in a sense and what he was about. He wants us us to get a picture of his character, his integrity, and his, his spirituality, if you will. So five things I see here. Let's identify each. Firstly, Simeon was in Jerusalem. And I think what in Jerusalem means that it means that he lived there. It doesn't say he was from Jerusalem. He was actually in Jerusalem. So that, 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 that could imply that he was there visiting or there on, I don't know, some sort of a business thing or something like that or there just to be around the town. I don't know. But I think that he actually probably lived in the holy city, if you will. Highly pious Jews preferred to live and to die in Jerusalem so that they could be resurrected from there. Literally, they would move from all, I mean, the, the, the diaspora Jews, the Jews who'd been scattered like early on that lived throughout that whole region and up north and in Syria and all those other places and parts of the Roman Empire, they would literally, if they could, when they got older, they would move to Jerusalem so they could spend the remaining days there and die there because they believed it was better to be resurrected when Messiah comes from Jerusalem, better there than in Caesarea Philippi or some other place. So I think that he lived there. And it's also obviously the place where the temple was, which was the central location for all Judaism and worship. Not to say that they didn't worship in synagogues and other places, but sacrifices and all that stuff was to be done at this particular locale. And so this is a a key location. Now, Jews that didn't live in Jerusalem, they lived outside, you know, maybe in proximity to it or, or beyond in another place. Like I said, those scattered Jews. They would literally travel to Jerusalem several times a year for various celebrations like Passover and so on. So if you had to go to, if you lived way out here in the sticks and you had to go to Jerusalem and it was either by donkey or by foot because they didn't have Greyhound, they didn't have planes or any of that, it might make more sense to move closer to the city or into the city if you need to go there because you're a pious person four or five times. You know, it would be kind of like attending a church that's an hour and a half away. Uh, I've met people that do that, and I'm like, I don't know how you do that, because it takes my wife an hour to have to get ready. Uh, so you're up at like 2 a.m. It takes me five minutes to get ready. I'm a man. Deodorant, shave, shower, throw some clothes on, disheveled, I'm here. Doesn't really matter. But just think about that. Now, I've, I've met people. Well, we go to church in Concord. You live in Manteca. That's an hour. Why, you know? So I'm thinking it might be easier if you're going to be at a place multiple times throughout the year or even weekly that you would live near it. It makes sense. So I think that this guy lived here in Jerusalem because he was pious. It was the holy city. And also because of some of the other details of the text 
Uh, we're going to learn about those things. And, and that, I think, is the strongest reason for why he lived there. So he was uh, probably a citizen of, of Jerusalem. Secondly, Simeon was righteous. Simeon was righteous. Now I just have a question for you, because this is, this is highly important. How is a person made righteous? How is a person, and what that means is being made right with God, being justified. So how does that happen? How does that take place? Well, what is the example of Abraham from way back in the Old Testament? Are we made righteous by what we do or by what we believe? How have we been made righteous? What does Romans 3.22 say? It, it, it says, righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So a person is made right with God or becomes righteous through, by grace, through faith, not through what they do. Now that is totally countercultural. That is totally American. And that's totally all other religion because our nation, our country, our society, our culture, and all religion teaches that you are made right with God by what you do. What is important is what you do. And, and somehow if your good outweighs your bad, then you're right with God and you're going to be cool. And Christianity sounds the buzzer and bangs the gong. Eh, no, that's not the way it actually works with the true living God. It's a faith deal. It's not a works deal. So what do we know about Simeon based on that little line that he was righteous? He was a man of faith. He was a man who believed in the coming Messiah. See, Old Testament, you believed in the Messiah to come. New Testament after that, you believe in the Messiah who came and who is coming again. So this particular guy was righteous because he had faith, because he believed in Messiah. He believed in God's promises. He believed God's word. That's how we want to look at it. He was a righteous man by faith. So important to draw that out because most of us don't get that. In fact, I switch back and forth every week from earning and believing. For some reason in, in my corrupted human, humanity and flesh, my flesh screams earn with God. And you can. And the Spirit says you can't cease your striving enjoy God, enjoy His grace, live for Him, you know, plunge yourself into God's grace and into His mercy, rely on that, and stop trying to please Him and to make Him happy and to make Him accept you through all that you do. And I guarantee you there are people in this room this morning who are trying to make God happy with them through what they're doing. And, and, and Christmas destroys that line of thinking. Jesus came because we couldn't do anything. He, he had to come. And so he was a righteous man by faith. Simeon was also, number three, devout. This means that he was devoted to the things of God. Okay, I like to put it like this. If you have real, true saving faith in Jesus Christ, you love him, he's your savior, you're following him, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to be a devout person. Devout does not mean perfect. Devout does not mean that you somehow hover around with angel wings and you're cool, and everything's perfect, and you never sin, and, you know, everything's dialed. Devout doesn't mean that. Devout just means that you are about the things of God. That by faith, you're bearing some fruit. You're bearing the fruits of the Spirit. That you love God, you love Jesus, you have that right Christian worldview and all that. You love others more than you love yourself. You serve, you give generously, all of those things. You're repentant, you know, when you mess up, when you screw up. 
you realize it, hopefully not way out in the future, and you, you know, and you realize it and you confess those things. You're just kind of in this ongoing process of repentance. This guy was a devout man. His faith, we might put it like this, his faith was accompanied by action, by fruit, by holy living. Not perfect living, but holy living by self-sacrifice, dying to self, and I would say through generosity, that's huge. Because every like, person in the New Testament, whenever the Spirit moves and one of the apostles or somebody's preaching the gospel, the person who gets saved, all of a sudden, they just, they're totally generous. You know, Danny DeVito, Zacchaeus. I always call him that because they like this little short guy, little short Jewish tax collector. First thing he does is just start giving up his money. And you guys are thinking, I knew it was coming. The pastor's going to ask us to give up his money. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it, it, man, when you get saved, you realize how generous God has been with you, with his mercy and grace. And it compels and implores you to be generous. And not just with your money, uh, with your possessions, your belongings, your time, your talent. And, and so many of you were so generous during this season of getting this building ready. I mean, how many of you saw it before? Wow. And, and some of you just spent so many hours down here and showing that generosity. It's so great. He was a devout guy, man. He, he was in Jerusalem. He was righteous. He was devout. Four, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What on earth does that mean? Well, he was waiting for God to bring comfort, consolation, right, comfort. He was waiting for God to console, to bring comfort to his people through the arrival and work of Messiah, Messiah would be the one who would come and it would, he would be a total game changer. He would usher in God's grace and, and, and mercy in a way that had yet to be seen. And, and he would comfort his people, bring comforting grace and, and even spiritual healing in these sorts of things. Uh, we might say that he would bring deliverance because to be delivered from uh, sin and the penalty of sin and the wages of sin to be released from that guilt and, and, and uh, the horrific things that come with being sinners in a spiritual sense is that is total and absolute comfort. How many of you have been comforted by the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ? Put your hand up. Have you not been consoled in a sense? It's unreal. My life was total and absolute chaos before Jesus. It was. And now is it perfect? No. But, man, I was really, really confused and really, really hurting and diving into one thing after the other to try to find purpose, to try to find identity, to try to find mercy and satisfaction. I could never find it in anything, drugs, alcohol, any, any of the things, you know, one hobby after the other. I, I would never even finish a project. I would start one and, oh, I'm, I, I'm getting my worth from this. Oh, that's a better one to get my worth from. And then jumping from one thing to the other, I have to admit, I still am a little bit of a hobby person, but um, I'm not trying to find my identity in my hobbies anymore. But this deliverance, this consolation that Messiah would bring, here's Simeon who's waiting for that. And let me tell you, every Jew was in this mode. They were waiting to be consoled. They were waiting to be comforted. They were waiting for Messiah to come. Imagine their scenario. They were in an oppressive, controlled scenario with the Romans over them. They were in bondage to the Romans. They were controlled by the Romans. And so they didn't have the kind of freedom and liberty that they enjoyed in the past. And so they were waiting and waiting and waiting. Simeon was waiting for the consolation. Five, he was anointed. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Now, this would have been an Old Testament style or Old Covenant type of anointing where the Spirit wasn't given permanently, that God would put His Spirit on people uh, temporarily uh, to achieve certain things for God, to serve Him in certain capacity. King David had an anointing like that, and others did. And so this would have been that kind of spirit indwelment, if you will. The Holy Spirit was upon him. God put his spirit, the Holy Spirit, on Simeon just as he had done. And we read about this last week with Zechariah, John the Baptist's daddy, right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he began to sing his song. It was a a Holy Spirit-enriched, indwelt kind of bursting forth of, of divine praise and adoration and doctrine in these things. So this is kind of the same anointing of the Spirit that Zechariah had. What did Zechariah do after being anointed with the Spirit? He identified Mary's unborn baby as Messiah, right? He called him the horn of salvation. God has raised up for us from the house of David, the lineage of David, which is where Messiah would come from. God has raised up from that house, the house of David, King David, their greatest king in all history, the horn of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. So Zechariah gets filled with the Spirit, anointed in a temporary mode, and he praises and identifies the baby in Mary's womb as the horn of salvation. Simeon did the same thing here, but post-birth at the temple. So both men were anointed with the Holy Spirit by God for the purpose of, ultimate purpose of, identifying Messiah. Pre-birth, Zechariah, and post-birth, Simeon. So there you have that. Now one of the reasons... We have been, as Christians, now if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come into you and regenerated you and made you a, given you a new heart, made you a new person. He uh, makes His abode in you. God is, does not dwell in, the true living God does not dwell in, in temples and palaces and structures made with human hands. He dwells in His people now until the millennial reign and then until the eternal reign. So He is in you if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Christ alone for your salvation. The Holy Spirit has been given to you for multiple reasons to seal you for the day of redemption, to guarantee your inheritance. These things are found in Ephesians 1 and 2 or chapter 1. And one of the other reasons is so that we will do exactly what Simeon and Zechariah did. And that's testify to the truth that Messiah has come. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus has come. So these men were anointed with the Spirit for the purpose of identifying and proclaiming Messiah has come. Zechariah, he's coming or he's here in the womb. And Simeon, he has come. I'm holding him. And we have the Spirit as Christians, if you're a Christian, for the same purpose, to testify to the fact that Messiah has come. He has come, right? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Totally. Christmas is all about, we sing, we just sang a bunch of songs that have to do with that. The first song we sang has to do with Him coming back. I can't wait for that. Now, let's drop down to 26. So we know who Simeon is now. We have an idea. Pretty cool guy. 26, speaking of Simeon again, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Wow, now that's really, really interesting. 
The Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would see the Lord's Christ, Messiah, with his own eyes, with his own two eyes, before he died. That's what uh, departed means, or before death there. Departed, it says, a little later. He, he would actually put his eyeballs on Messiah. Now, obviously, this is a guy who was all these other things awaiting Messiah. No wonder he hung out at the temple. He figured if the Messiah comes, and he's going to come because God told me, and God told me that I'm going to see him before I go to be with the Lord, I'm thinking he's probably going to show up at the temple. Somehow he's probably going to make it there. And so this guy hangs out at the temple. If you fast forward down there, you find a woman who was doing kind of the same thing, hanging out at the temple. Now, I would have been at the temple, too, if I were in his shoes. I would think, okay, that's the logical place where he would, uh, where I would see him maybe for the first time, or obviously for the first time. And I would say that if God made this promise to me, I would probably hang out in the temple, but it wouldn't be long after receiving the promise, I would begin to doubt the promise, because I am by nature a doubter in the things of God, even though I'm a Christian and all that. I, I still have a hard time with, with some of these things. And, and I can see myself, you know, I don't know how long before God gave Simeon this promise. I'm thinking it was way early and, and he had to wait a long time to build up that anticipation. But I'm thinking maybe a week after I got the promise, I'd be like, Lord, um, you do realize I'm 72 you do realize I got a wicked case of tennis elbow right now and I can't even lift my right arm. You do realize that my eyesight, I, I, I might have glaucoma, I'm not sure, my eyesight isn't all that good. Are you really going to send him so that I can lay my own eyes on him and see him? This is what I would have been playing. I'd have been like, you can just do it tomorrow. You know, I would have been impatient and, and worried and wondering and anxious. Are you going to do this before I die, right? Oh, ye of little faith. Can anyone else relate to what I'm saying here, or am I the only spiritual buffoon in the room? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I haven't met a person yet. Now, anyone who would say, I saw the promise of God, I totally believed it, never went back. I'd be like, you're a liar! <laughs> liar! I, I, I would just be like, you've never doubted the promises of God? You've never doubted in His promises? I mean, we all do, right? We have this flesh. It's horrible. It's totally opposed to the things of the Spirit and to the Spirit. I am a person of, of, of weak faith at times, and I have to confess that. Uh, and we don't see anything like that with Simeon. <laughs> he might be the exception to the rule. And I guarantee he was walking around that place and hanging out there. He was hanging out there for a while. Now look at 27 and 28. This is just... Mind-blowing. And he came in the spirit into the temple. So what that tells me is that he was hanging out close to it, maybe in the outer gate or something like that. He was nearby. And he came in the spirit in the temple. And when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus, right, little baby Jesus, he's like 40 days old, to do for him according to the custom of the law, and here's what Simeon does. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, comma, or dot, dot, dot. And we'll get to that. Now, this is just amazing. God led Simeon. Now, here's God making good on his promise to Simeon, right? God led Simeon into the section of the temple where baby dedications were performed. I don't know if they had a special section. They probably did it near the altar because there was a sacrifice. I don't know. But the way that this plays out is Simeon's out there hanging out, and he's led by the Spirit, 
He believes the Spirit is communicating to him in some sort of way to go into that particular area and to hang out in there. And, and then it seems that God positioned him maybe at the front of the line if there were others there trying to do that same thing. But somehow he goes, he's led by the Spirit into that area in the temple and right up to where they're going to be in a moment. Pretty amazing. And when Joseph and Mary stepped forward with baby Jesus, the Holy Spirit said to Simeon, it doesn't say it in the text, so I'm implying it, but somehow the Holy Spirit communicated to him, there he is. I don't know if he said there he is or if he just, he just knew. I don't know how it was communicated, but he let him in, and when they entered and came forward and did their thing and they're holding the baby, somehow the Holy Spirit says, there he is. That's him right there. That baby. Pretty amazing. And what does he do? He snatches up baby Jesus from his parents. I'd be like, I'm going to throw down on this dude. That would just be weird, right? That would be awkward. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. He probably looked like Gandalf. So imagine with me, you know, you shall pass, you know. He takes Jesus from them. They're like, okay, we want to offer, you know, what's this guy doing? He takes Jesus and he takes him in his own arms, and then he begins to bless God and basically sing the song of Simeon, his song, the Nunc Dimittis. Amazing. I just want to talk about the Holy Spirit for a moment here. I think it's important. The Holy Spirit's role in our salvation or even in creation is multifaceted. Okay, first of all, the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Godhead, your Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is one in three. And so the Holy Spirit's role in the Godhead, because it's amazing, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all do, they're all exactly the same in all of that, eternal and divine and all that, but they have set it up to where they do different functions in creation, or more particularly in our salvation. It's pretty amazing. And, and, and one of the primary tasks of the Holy Spirit is to call attention to Christ and to glorify Christ. Now, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we typically think of being indwelt by Him and, and, you know, the things that I described earlier that Simeon was experiencing. But how often do we actually consider or think about this primary role of the Holy Spirit to bring attention to Christ and to glorify Christ? In fact, I think that's His primary bit. That's what He focuses on doing. Now, here's how this kind of plays out. One of the ways that you can know, and I think this is important because there's mass confusion outside these doors, and, 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 and quite frankly, we battle it here because we try to stay in God's Word and all that. There's confusion everywhere because we have flesh, because there's men. But there's mass confusion in other churches about this particular thing. One of the ways that you can tell if you're in a Holy Spirit-led church, and you hear about that all the time, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. One of the ways you can tell is if the pastors, maybe the elders, the deacons, whoever, leaders, the worship leaders, even the congregants. This is how you know if you're in a Holy Spirit-led and filled church. They in those churches make much of Jesus. That's how you know. That's how you know it's a work of the Spirit because that's His job. Churches that make more of the Holy Spirit then the other two members of the Godhead are not Holy Spirit-led or Holy Spirit-filled churches. 
Churches, and all they do is ramp up and talk about the Spirit endlessly. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Very little reference to Jesus. Rarely do they talk about the Father. Not Holy Spirit-led churches. In fact, could even be false churches. Now, you're thinking, how can that be? Because they're not doing what the Holy Spirit has come to do. And that'll tell you right there. That's the, that's the spiritual test. That's the litmus test. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this in John 16, 14. What did he say? Does anyone remember? He will glorify who? Me. That's what Jesus himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity, of the Godhead, said about the Holy Spirit. He didn't say he will glorify himself. He didn't say he will make much of himself. Now, I am not telling you that it is wrong to celebrate the Holy Spirit and to mention the Holy Spirit or any of those things. Holy Spirit is the active member of God in a congregation. You take him out, you don't have anything. You don't have life. But the emphasis in a church, if it's Holy Spirit-led and filled, will be on Jesus. Because that is what the Holy Spirit came to do. Do we not see that in the text? Simeon is brought into the temple by the Spirit. Jesus, baby Jesus, is identified to Simeon by the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing in this text? Making much of Jesus. There it is. Now, and I want to be sensitive and, and not mean or cruel in any other you know, those kinds of things here, but some of our folks out there in, in the culture and churches have gotten this wrong, namely charismatic Pentecostal, because it's all about the Spirit. Not all, not all. There are some great traditional, biblically sound charismatics and Pentecostals. So let's not just blanket them all into that. Okay, that'd be a foolish thing to do because I know some and they love Jesus and they focus on Jesus. So let's not say it. But I will say there is a leaning there in that movement and there's a huge leaning in another movement, but it isn't about the Holy Spirit. It's about Mary. And that's Catholicism. You have two errors that are taking place in so-called churches. They do not emphasize. I, I told you this story about the time I went to a, a Catholic gig where this kid was getting his Eagle Scout thing and it was held in a Catholic building. The biggest, brightest statue in that cathedral was Mary. Mary. And she was not no cross. Jesus was actually bowing to her. And that's where I was telling Rachel, if I had a baseball bat, I would ruin this ceremony. I mean, it just gets me fired up. And I just want to be sensitive, but these are errors that we see. You're making much of Mary, that is not a Holy Spirit thing. Making much of the Holy Spirit, that is not a Holy Spirit-led, indwelt scenario. He came to glorify and to identify Jesus Christ. Did you know that that's basically your salvation in a nutshell? You didn't know Jesus from Adam, the Holy Spirit, made you know Jesus, did he not? Here's Jesus. And he gave you a heart that would love Jesus and respond to Jesus, and worship Jesus. It's all the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the revealer of all spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. Apart from the Holy Spirit, a person cannot understand the Bible. I'm talking about rightly. They can't understand its spiritual implications. They will not see 
and receive Jesus as Savior. They won't do it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to downplay or minimize the work of the Spirit. It's huge. It's massive. It was the Holy Spirit who led Simeon into the temple and identified baby Jesus. If you were to subtract the Holy Spirit from this narrative, from this historical event, because this isn't romper room playtime where these are cool stories. These are actual historical events. The Bible is a history book. It's the book of all truth as well. If you were to take Jesus out or the Holy Spirit out of this scenario, what would you end up with? You would end up with an old man wandering around the temple until he died. He'd have never, Simeon would have never found Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. He would have never found him if the Spirit wasn't doing that work. If the Spirit wasn't in him and leading him, he would have never found Jesus. So what I'm telling you this morning is that you've got to have the Spirit if you're going to see and know Jesus. You don't have the Spirit, it's not happening. You might know him with your head, you don't know him with your heart. And it's so important that we understand these things. No one finds Jesus apart from the Spirit. And it, it, it just makes my skin crawl when I hear people say, and they testify and they say, I found Jesus. That, what's going on with you, Biff? Well, I'll tell you, I'm a different man. I found Jesus. Well, I can appreciate that. I'm glad something happened there. But Biff, let's be doctrinally and biblically correct here. You didn't find Jesus. You weren't looking for Jesus, man. You were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins. You loved what you were doing. You know it. You know it. You didn't find Jesus. You weren't even looking for him. You weren't a seeker. You were dead. Jesus found you, brother. Now rejoice in that. Take that glory away from yourself and put it on Jesus. Jesus found you. He marked you out. That was all set up to, and let me, let me clarify something else here. None of that was happenstance. Well, you know, X plus Y, and then Jesus, it's all ordained from eternity past. My son always makes fun of me because I say eternity past all the time. I use the phrase at home for crying out loud. This tri-tip from eternity past was planned for us to eat tonight. It's delectable. It's juicy. I use it. I just, that's just it. It's just stupid. This, is, this isn't like, well, I stumbled and found Jesus. I found Jesus. This is Jesus found you, and he planned from eternity past to find you. You were marked out. You were ordained. You were elected unto salvation. What a glorious thing that's been done for us. When the Spirit comes, he just makes it all happen. So don't go around telling people I found Jesus. Go around telling people Jesus found me. Jesus saved me. Don't say, I prayed to receive Jesus. Say, Jesus invaded my soul, rescued me, pulled me out of the mire and the mud and the darkness. That's what he does. Hallelujah, right? It's him. It's him. If it's us, I don't even want to be here. If it's something that I've done or I found or I stumbled upon or I did in my energy or whatever, I'm just done. I'm clocking out. Why do I feel like that? Because I know me. I needed divine intervention. And that's exactly what the Spirit does for Jesus. Now let's begin to look at the Nunc Dimittis, his song. 29, Lord, remember he's holding the baby. They're thinking, what's going to happen? I hope he's not crazy. 
29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, I'm just telling you, if I'm a parent, that's a weird thing to start off with while you're holding my baby. I think he's talking about dying, and he's holding my kid. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon felt like he could now depart in peace because God's promise had come to pass. He had seen Messiah with his own eyes and was now ready to peacefully enter paradise. It was almost like that, that last piece of the messianic puzzle fell into place and he was just like, okay, I'm just, I'm just ready to go home. Um, anyone ever felt like that? Uh, hopefully you don't feel like that before Jesus because you ain't ready to go home. But once you have Jesus and you're satisfied in him and all that, and you're living in him and you love it and you got that abundant life and all that, you're kind of cool with departure. You really are. And sometimes you wish it. Or better yet, you wish for rapture. Lord, I'm in a bad situation. You can come right now. Please do. That's how you feel. And that's how he felt here. He saw Jesus. He's like, I can go in peace now. I can get out. I can bounce. He wanted to get out. And I'd like like this little inference from the text. Even as an infant, the Prince of Peace had brought peace to one of his own. We sang about the Prince of Peace earlier, didn't we? That's an amazing little inference that we can draw from the text. And I think that, as I alluded to earlier, pointed to earlier, I think that God made this promise early on with Simeon. And Simeon spent many, many years coming to the temple to look for Messiah. I think this went on and on and on and on. I don't think it was so God could kind of straggle him along or any of that, but I think that he probably made the promise early on. I don't think it was on Tuesday and then he fulfilled it on Wednesday. I think that there was some time that passed here. Simeon had to wait, and his anticipation grew probably over the years. And it could have been many years. We don't know. And the reason why I say this is because there is an utter sense of relief in verse 29. Lord, now, finally, now I can depart in peace for you have, according to your word. I mean, there is relief here. Now, finally, I can do it. I love that. I like how the NIV uh, reads here on this particular text. I like its rendering. It says, Sovereign Lord. These are the words of Simeon. Just a, this, They mean the exact same thing, but they're just said a little differently. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I like that rendering better because I think it's truer to the original manuscript and text. In fact, interestingly, it's truer and more accurate to... Um, I'm trying to think of what the name of it is, the Latin Vulgate, which is one of the earliest translations. It's, it's amazing. I love that. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, as you have promised me, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. That is a great, great rendering. And that rendering, or at least from the Latin Vulgate, is where we get the phrase nunc dimittis. That's a Latin phrase. And it's drawn from the beginning of his sentence right here. Nunc dimittis means now dismiss now dismiss which seems to be and i don't think it even seems i think it's exactly what simeon was asking the lord to do here after fulfilling this promise that he would see messiah with his own eyes before he died he's saying you can now dismiss me in peace do it lord dismiss me 
Amazing. That's your nunc dimittis. Dismiss me. In verse 30, he gives the rationale. We're talking about Simeon. Gives the rationale or reason for his dismissal. It's as if he said, dismiss me now, Lord, and here is why. And then we go into verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. I love how Simeon refers to baby Jesus as your salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. There is salvation in no one else, friends. He's it. He is it. This statement of fact is just so pure and accurate and right. He was looking literally at holding in his arms God's salvation. Baby Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. Simeon was prepared to be dismissed because he had seen God's salvation. Now I'll tell you, people spend an enormous amount of time and money preparing for their dismissal from this planet, don't they? They buy life insurance policies. I've got one. I've never told my wife how much it's worth because I don't want her to be tempted to take me out early. <laughs> You're worth that much? You know, I got guns. It's just a bad thing. They buy insurance policies. By the way, honey, you'll probably get about 400 grand. You're all witnesses. If I disappear, you know what's going on. Consequently, she gets like a hundred. I get a hundred grand when she dies. Okay, there's no, uh, there's no way that I could replace my wife with a hundred grand. And that just sounded really awkward because it's like I'd go out and try to buy somebody for a hundred grand. She's like worth vastly more than that. Maybe about 250. <laughs> People buy life insurance policies, do they not? They buy life insurance policies. They set up wills, last will and testament. They appoint executors or an executor to their estate. All right, Fred, I'm signing you up. You're going to be the one that makes sure that this goes here and this goes here. And you carry out my wishes when I d I'm dismissed, when I depart. And so on, right? So people, a lot, now I would say responsible people in a sense, at least in a physical sense, that in a temporal sense that they prepare for their dismissal. People that don't do that, that's not wise. You should have life insurance and all those things. But people go, through great, go to great lengths to prepare for their dismissal by setting these things up. And yet, vast multitudes of people are actually nowhere near prepared because they have failed to prepare themselves spiritually. In fact, that's not even on their radar. All they're thinking about are, is the temporal, the bank account, the money, the estate, the house, the Toyota Sienna. Nobody wants that. You know, that's all they're thinking about. They're, they're, not, they're not considering and thinking about or pondering the spiritual implications of their dismissal, which are of eternal value. Life is a vapor. We're here just for, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 years maybe. If you're Bruce, 110. <laughs> Some of us are here a lot longer. I don't think I'm going to be because Baker hearts explode at like 65. So you're going to get paid. <laughs> People have, for the most part, they prepare in some sense, but they do not prepare themselves spiritually for their departure. They have rejected God's salvation. Jesus Christ. Doing so is to neglect the spiritual preparations that you need 
to do. And I would just ask you, are you prepared for your dismissal? Are you prepared? Do you believe in God's salvation, Jesus Christ? If you don't, you're not properly prepared. I don't care what kind of bank situation you have or life insurance. You're going to leave behind a lot of money and all. It doesn't matter. You are not properly prepared. You are not adequately prepared. In fact, you are just not prepared. And you need to prepare yourself spiritually. And you can do that. And this would be a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just you doing it. If you do it, it's because the Spirit is doing it in and through you. But you can do it. You can be spiritually prepared by putting your faith and trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. The one whom Simeon held up. Now, he was a baby then, but he grew up and lived a perfect life and did all those things, died on a cross, was resurrected for us so we could be justified. All these amazing things that Jesus did for us, you put your faith and you put your trust in him alone. Don't, don't put it in him and someone else too or keep carrying along with that old dead religion. Don't do it. It's him alone. Why was Simeon prepared for his dismissal? Because he had done this. He believed in the baby that he was holding. He believed in Jesus Christ, God's salvation, he believed. Now look at 31. He's continuing to sing that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Probably didn't sound anything like that. Probably much prettier. I don't know, that was pretty good. Not really. Simeon sang, and right here, this is really amazing, right there, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon sang his version of Isaiah 52.10. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I love that messianic promise. Amazing. Now I'm kind of reminded of my, my youth pastor days when I read that line several times. I used to, I was a youth pastor over at Big Valley, big church on the other side of town. Many of you came over here from there. They're still looking for you over there, by the way. Um, <laughs> I used to challenge, Colby was a teacher there. I used to challenge my junior high students pretty regularly to be evangelistic, meaning to spread the gospel, to share the gospel with their friends and family and people and others. And, and, and the rationale I would give them is because the Lord Jesus was not crucified in someone's backyard in secret, but out in the open, on a hilltop, during Passover, when hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world were there celebrating Passover and literally passing by him and seeing him hanging and agonizing and dying on that cross for the sins of the world. What Jesus came to do was not done in secret. It was not done in a backyard. It was not done undercover. It was all done out in the open. And since Jesus' ministry took place before the multitudes, we must take the message of his ministry, which is what? The gospel to the multitudes, to the public, to everyone that we can. And what Isaiah and Simeon tell us here is that God's salvation, Jesus Christ, has been prepared before all people. And, in a sense, for all people. That's what Isaiah says, for all people. And what does he mean? For every ethnicity, for every region. It's not just, it's not just a, 
folks that look like me and that sound like me, Anglo. You know, God has uh, prepared his son salvation for the nations, for every tribe and tongue. There will be people from every tribe and tongue, no matter what color, ethnicity, wherever, whatever region, that God has planned to save, and they will be saved. You look over in uh, Revelation 7, 9, it's a vast multitude, and there's so many people you can't even count them, and they're of every color and of every language, and they have one thing in common, Jesus. Jesus is what unites. He's the one who unites the world and brings true and lasting peace. It's never going to happen through the UN or anything else. And that's what he's saying here. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This salvation was put on display and has been put on display and continues to be before the eyes of the entire world. And this is a, this is a shocker if you're Jewish because you probably still think that it's just for you. Had never been intended to be just for Jews, but for the entire world. Now, that's not to say that the Jews didn't get the promises and the prophecy and all that. They did. They're significant. They're amazing. That's why we love Israel. We're grafted into them. They're not grafted into the church. But God's plan from before time and before the foundations of the world, just to get to my son from eternity past, there he is, he's laughing, was to save people from every tribe and tongue. And that's what he's pointing to here. The redeemer of Israel is also the redeemer of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Now, this does not mean that salvation is universal in its application. It does not mean that everyone will get saved. We know that this salvation is only applied to those who believe to the elect. It is universal in its scope in that it will be applied to all types, to every tongue, every tribe. And that's fantastic. That's great news. Now, this aspect of Messiah's work uh, is what I think Simeon wanted to emphasize in his song. And he continued to do this in verse 32. Look at it. We're almost finished. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is how he wraps up his song. I love the commentary in the Gospel Transformation Bible. It's just a, an edition or version of a Bible. It's a study Bible, but it has a gospel emphasis, the finished work of Jesus, like everywhere, and it's really neat to read. But I love what it says here. It says, in Simeon's words, we see the universal scope of the gospel. Now in Jesus, God's plan from the beginning of creation is being accomplished. The spreading of the gospel to all the earth, to Jew and Gentile. I love that explanation of what Simeon said in verse 32. I love it. I like how Simeon referred to Jesus as a light, right? He's a light that brings revelation to Gentiles. And do you know what a Gentile is, by the way? A Gentile just, just means non-Jew. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. You have Jewish people and you have Gentile people. What are we? Unless you're Jewish, you're Gentile. And so Gentile is a reference to us, and that's what makes this passage so exhilarating and exciting. Now, I want you to check out what some other passages say about Jesus and light, or Messiah and light. Isaiah 42.6, this is um, God prophesying through Isaiah, speaking of Messiah. I will keep you, that's Jesus you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. 
Now, you may not realize this, but Gentile people like us have pretty much walked in darkness since the beginning. We're not the Jews. We don't have the covenants. We don't have the scripture. We didn't have any of those things. When the Jews came into the promised land, they were invading lands of Gentile people. And um, quite frankly, they were conquering most of them. And, and to some, they were also revealing God's truth. But for the most part, Gentiles have always walked in darkness. People like us have. We have never had really the truth, any influence from God. Well, let me tell you right here, what's happening with Simeon is a turning point in history where God, in an unprecedented way, in a new, he was setting a new precedent to begin to reach Gentiles like never before with the good news, with Messiah. Jesus had come to do something that had yet to be seen throughout the world, and that was to bring salvation, not just to the Jews, because that had been going on, but to Gentiles. Now, of course, that makes me think, well, what about all the Gentiles before that? Well, that's tough to wrestle with. But I'm, I'm looking at it from the post position and rejoicing that God had chosen to do that. Because if he hadn't, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be, cel we'd be selling, celebrating Christmas, but we would have a big Santa up there instead of a cross, you know? And we'd be singing Kumbaya in Latin. I don't know. Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light, speaking of Jesus, speaking of coming Messiah, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Wow, what a text. Isaiah 60, verse 3. And nations shall come to your light. God is going to draw through the Holy Spirit nations to the light who is Jesus, that bright, shining, divine light. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Love that. Over in John in the New Testament, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the what of the world? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, listen carefully, these are Jesus' own words tied into everything that we've been talking about, tied into Simeon's little bit of a prophecy here where he's reiterating some stuff from Isaiah. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Listen, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so what that tells me is that the only way to walk in light, in the revelation of God, in truth, in joy, in satisfaction, in purpose, in every good thing that the Father has, in His salvation for all eternity, the only way to do that is to follow the one who is the light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you this morning, friend, is there is no other way. There is no other source of light. There is no other bright, shining bulb. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. He alone is the light. Do you believe that this morning? Some of your faces seem to, seem to say yes. Your countenance says yes. And, and some of them say, I, I don't care. He, whoever follows him, has the light of life. That's true life. You've been illuminated. You see things differently. Your entire everything changes when you follow Jesus. You walk in light. And guess what? As Gentiles, we typically walk in darkness. God has made a way for us to walk in light because he sent his light. Isaiah prophesied about it. Simeon acknowledged it. He sent his light into the world to specifically right here, Gentiles. 
People who have always walked in darkness. This is good news. This is Christmas. Well, it might boil down 32 like this. Simeon recognized two things about the baby in his arms. 32a, Jesus is a light, or the light, who came to reveal the message of light, the gospel, the telling of what he came to do and what he did for sinners and Gentiles and Jews like you and I, the gospel. Jesus is the light who came to reveal the message of light, the gospel to Gentiles, people like us. Verse 32b, Jesus is the glory of Israel. That's what he states. He words it a little differently, but that's what he means. Twofold purpose there, to bring light to Gentiles, to expand God's salvation beyond the nation of Israel to people like us, way over here in America, and of all places, Modesto. That's Christmas. That's, that's why we celebrate. 